Tonight's scripture is from Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. So you will be saved if you honestly say, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe with all your heart that God raised him from death. God will accept you and save you if you truly believe this and tell it to others. This is the word of the Lord. Clark Stevens is a Christian psychologist who helped CARM, the rescue mission, design the LaunchPoint program. LaunchPoint is a four-week program that helps homeless men and women discover God's plan for their life and then develop their own plan in light of that plan. And Clark was part of a team that spent several years researching LaunchPoint. And they kicked it off, I guess, about a year or so ago now, and they they had a a pilot class to launch it in. And Clark was telling me this story this week. He said, uh, on the second day of class, a pastor got up, and they start every day with a devotion. It's a seven-hour day. They're together all day. And the devotion left and saw storms and, and, and clouds. And she looked out the window on the right, and she saw bright sunshine. And she told the class, your perspective on life will be shaped by which window you look out of. Now Clark got up, went to the board, drew a plane with storm clouds on the left and sunshine on the right, and pointed a highlighter at his his friends, and he said, you know, I bet a lot of you could tell a story about storms. I bet a lot of your lives look like that side of the plane. And he asked them to share. He said it was like popcorn. They started to throw their hands up and, and, and talk about their stories. One would say, I was sexually abused. Another would say, my parents abandoned me. Another, I became addicted to drugs at 14. And then Clark, after hearing these stories, stood back and he said, you know, in this lunch point class, we're going to teach you all sorts of wonderful resources about how to find housing and education and jobs and all these great things. But if you look through the stormy window, if you approach this class just by drawing upon the story you've had so far, you're not going to make it. And then he asked the class, he said, what has your story taught you about yourself? One of them said, I'm a failure. Another one said, I'm stupid. Another one said, I'm a loser. Another one said, I'm done. Then Clark said, I'm going to put something out there to you. Romans 12.1 says that you can have a transformed mind when you believe in Jesus. And when your mind is transformed by Jesus, you can know his will. God will give you a new way of thinking, a new belief system, a new way of viewing opportunity. And then he said an older African-American man in the back popped up and said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Clark said that was a pivotal moment for him. He could see the lights going on. And he ended by saying, you know, class, when you look at the life through the gospel, you'll have an entirely different approach to life. What you believe affects everything. It's really true, not just for people living in, 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 a, in a homeless shelter. The gospel affects everything. It is the most powerful story in the world. 1534, uh, a new translation was coming out of the New Testament in France, and the the editors asked John Calvin, a French reformer, to write an introduction to it. I read it this week. I saw it uh, posted on a a blog, and it just was so powerful, I thought I'd share it with you tonight as we 
start looking at this summary of the gospel in the, in the creeds. Calvin wrote this, Without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty. All wisdom, folly before God. Strength is weakness. And all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, fools wise, sinners justified, the desolate comforted, slaves free. It is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. It follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle. Wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back, combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness all misfortune. For all these things which were to be the weapons of the devil in his battle against us and the sting of death to pierce us are turned for us into exercises which we can turn to our profit. If we are able to boast with the apostles saying, O hell, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? It is because by the Spirit of Christ promised to the elect, we live no longer. But Christ lives in us. And we are by the same Spirit seated among those who are in heaven. So that for us the word is no more, even while our conversation is in it. But we are content in all things, whether country, place, condition, clothing, meat, and all such things. And we are comforted in tribulation, joyful in sorrow, glorifying under vituperation, abounding in poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient among evils, living in death. This is what we should in short seek in the whole of Scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in Him and are offered to us by Him from God the Father. That's the greatest story ever told. It's God's story. It's changed millions and millions of lives. And it's a story that can be told at any time, in any place, and always makes sense. Danny, who we just prayed for, we prayed for him last week. He's, I think he's there by now. He's in uh, Kenya. He's working with the Maasai tribesmen, and uh, they share the gospel. And, and I have a little itinerary on my desk so I can pray for him every day, and I was looking at it earlier this week, and most of the days say, tell the story. Now, how can he tell the story? He doesn't know their language. Well, the way that they do it is they have a picture book with uh, the gospel laid out in, in pictures. 
And they communicate the story of the gospel through the picture book. Well, the church has been looking for ways to tell the story ever since the church began. I'd like to take you on an imaginary trip to a time and place where the whole church from all around the world came together to make sure they were getting the story right. Uh, We'd start by going out to McGee Tyson, catching the first flight to Istanbul, which I'm sure goes to Atlanta. Once you get to Istanbul, you go down to the docks, you get a ferry. You get in the ferry, you go across the Sea of Marmara to a little seaport village called Iznik, and you'll find a sleepy little town, not many tourists there, just a couple of tea shops and handicraft stalls. Now, once you get to Iznik, I want you to pretend that you have a time travel machine, and I want you to set the date for May 20th, the year 325. When you arrive, you'll be in a city that that then was called Nicaea. The most powerful man in the world, the 40-year-old Emperor Constantine, has a summer palace there. And he has invited all the bishops in the Christian church in the world to the palace so that they can determine once and for all what the scriptures say about the divinity of Jesus Christ. Is he God or is he not? That was a big debate in the empire at the time. And if you walk around the city, which wasn't enormous, but was, more, was larger at the time, you'll see hundreds of bishops in flowing robes strolling through cobblestone streets, often fervently in debate with each other. And if you follow the bishops, you'll walk into the central building of the royal palace, and you'll take your seat, and you'll stand when they stand as the emperor comes into the hall, And then you'll listen to to Constantine, who's only recently become a Christian himself, uh, open the conference with these words spoken in Latin. He says, I must thank God that in addition to all other blessings, he has shown me this highest one of all to see you gathered here in harmony and one mind. Discord in the church I consider more fearful and painful than any war. I shall feel my desire fulfilled only when I see the minds of all united in that peaceful harmony which you, as the anointed of God, must preach to others. And with those words, the council of Nicaea was begun. It was the first time when uh, bishops from all around the world had gathered together to hammer out a doctrinal question. Now, let's suppose that... uh, You've got some time, and you can stay there for two months because they meet every day for two months to hammer this out. It will be a very interesting time for you. You'll see graffiti painted on the castle wall arguing finer points of Trinitarian doctrine. Our graffiti has kind of declined a bit since since those days. Uh, If you go into the baking shop, you'll see a baker on one side of the street singing a song about the deity of Christ and a baker on the other side of the street singing a song that says he's not. You might even see a fist fight or two between bishops. But at the end of the day, you will discover that the bishops have come together and written a creed that summarizes the story of the gospel 
and today we call it the Nicene Creed. And it's like Danny's picture book. It summarizes the story of the gospel in a list of affirmations. Now, where did these bishops, uh, I read that there were 318 there, where did these bishops from all around the world get this idea that they should summarize the gospel message? Well, they got it from the Bible. Uh, The early Christians were an oral culture. They did not have their own Bible. So one of the things they did from the very beginning is the teachers in the church would, would, would come up with short statements that summarized the gospel story. And then people would memorize them and pass them on. Let's look at uh, two examples of early creeds. Uh, This is one from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Christ died for our sins, as the scriptures say. He was buried, and three days later he was raised to life, as the scriptures say. Christ appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After this he appeared to more than 500 other followers, most of them still alive, but some have died. He also appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Finally, he appeared to me, even though I'm like someone who was born at the wrong time. Now, if if you're reading along in the New Testament, you wonder sometimes why the editors or the translators kind of, when you come to a phrase like that, they they indent it. Uh, The reason why is they're showing that they believe that this is an early creed, an early statement of belief that was passed around among the churches and probably would have been sung. Uh, and it might have been a hymn, too. Now, here's, a, here's another example of an early creed in the Bible. It's from Paul's letters to the Philippians. And most scholars think this was a hymn that would have been sung in churches. Christ was truly God, but he did not try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave. When he became like one of us, Christ was humble. He obeyed God and even died on a cross. Then God gave Christ the highest place and honored his name above all others. So at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow down, those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And to the glory of God the Father, everyone will openly agree, Jesus Christ is Lord. Somewhere in the end of the first century, the the leaders of the church came together and, and, and summarized this in what they called the Apostles' Creed. And we had the new members share that tonight. And um, that was a, was a foundational document. And when the new Christians would get baptized, they would stand up and they would say uh, that creed. Now, towards the end of the, the third century, debate entered the church about the deity of Jesus Christ. Some taught that he was not fully God. They took a position that would be similar to what Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons believe today. Others taught that he was fully God. And this came into a great crisis in the church. And so they came together uh, to hammer out what the scriptures teach about Christ's deity. And sometimes we call this uh, consensual orthodoxy because it's right belief, a summary of biblical doctrine, hammered out not by one man, but in consensus, in in a council. The Latin version of of the creed begins with the words credo. And so if you were in a baptismal service in a Latin-speaking country in the second century, it would start with the the, the convert saying credo, which means I believe, and then they would go through it. And that's where we get uh, our word, 
creed from. Now, as we saw tonight, the, the, the creed begins with that phrase, credo, I believe. But what does that mean? Uh, one of the things that I hope we can do together in this series is just go back to the basics of our faith, the foundations of our faith, and, and look hard at, at the simple essence of the gospel. And, and one of the things I want you to think about tonight is, what does it mean to believe. What are we saying when we say we believe? Uh, Christians, after, call, after all, are called believers. Well, Abraham is, is a good example of a man who believes in God. Uh, he's enjoying a decent life in a comfortable Turkish village when God comes to him, tells him to leave his friends, his family, his job, and head down the road to Canaan. God says to Abraham, I'm I'm going to save the world through you. I'm going to make you a mighty family. Abraham hits the road. Years pass. He and his wife Sarah cannot get pregnant. And then God and Abraham have a conversation. Abraham says, Lord, all-powerful, you've given me everything I could have asked for, but no children. The Lord says, you will have a son on your own, and everything you have will be his. And then we read some of the most famous words in the Old Testament. Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord was pleased with him. In the New Testament, he becomes the model of faith. So what what is he doing? Is is he saying, okay, Lord, I get the plan. It all makes sense to me. Uh, Thumbs up. I'm in. No. He really doesn't know what's going to happen. Or is it more like this? Uh, uh, My youngest daughter, Ashton, is uh, auditioning tonight in Auburn, New York which is up near Canada. And so today, Santa and I are watching the weather, and this big storm is coming in, and she's not done auditioning even yet, I don't think. And, and so I say to her in the way, I hope she gets home before the snow comes. Is that what it means to believe? Is, is Abraham saying, I, I wish this would work out okay? Nope, that's not belief either. Abraham is trusting God. That's what belief is. It's trusting God at his word. God had said to Abraham, I will bless you. I'll provide a family through whom I will save the world. And Abraham trusts God's promise. Another way to think about it is there is this much bigger story going on that God has invited Abraham to be a part of. And Abraham doesn't understand all of it. But when God comes to him, when he's in that comfortable life in that Turkish village of Haran and says, hit the road, we're going to save the world, Abraham submits his story to God's story. Now, Jesus talks a lot about believing. Mark summarizes Jesus' ministry as calling people to believe. After John was arrested, Mark says, Jesus went to Galilee, told the good news that comes from God. He said, the time has come. God's kingdom will soon be here. Turn back to God and believe the good news. And then he does something very interesting. He starts asking people to leave what they were doing and follow him. As Jesus was walking along the shore of the Lake of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother Andrew. They were fishermen. They were casting their nets in the lake. And Jesus said, come with me. I will teach you how to bring in people instead of fish. 
And right then the two brothers dropped their nets and went with him. They believe. What do they do? They lay down their own plans. They, they lay down their own story. They lay down the way they'd figured out life was going to go. And they begin to wrap their lives around this author, this Lord, who is writing the most incredible story in the world. Everybody has a story, and I want us to think about this for a little bit. We all live by a script, and uh, I want you to consider a quote from an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. He says, everybody has a script. People live their lives by a script that is sometimes explicit, but often implicit. And by that he means, sometimes you're aware of what your script is, sometimes you're not. The script may be one of the great meta-narratives created by Karl Marx or Adam Smith, or it may be an unrecognized tribal mantra like my dad always said. The practice of the script evokes a self, yields a sense of self, provides security. When one engages in psychotherapy, the therapy often has to do with re-examining the script or completely scuttling the script in favor of a new one. A process that we call conversion. See, we all have a story. We're all performing a script. The homeless people had a story about what they could do to make themselves safe and happy. Their story was essentially, I can't. Everybody has a script. One researcher did this long research project on American teenagers and how they thought about God. And at the end, here's what he found. He summarized the script that he kept hearing. It went like this. I believe in a creator God who orders and watches over life on earth. I believe that God wants people to be good and to be nice. I believe the central goal of life is to be happy, feel good. I believe that God is not involved in my life except when I need God to solve a problem. I believe the good people go to heaven. Virtual worlds without end, amen. If that's your script, that will affect how you live. And sometimes we're not fully aware of the script that we've chosen to, to live by. I've shared my story with you. I don't want to bore you with it. But last week I talked about the depression I experienced when I left my first ministry. And I did go to therapy. And, and one of the things that the therapist helped me understand was that I had a false script that had failed to keep me safe and happy. And it went like this. Get as many degrees as you can. Build a church as big as you can. Write things that lots of people read. And you will be safe and happy. And at age 40, the script failed me. Now let me suggest to you that one of the reasons you might struggle with depression, one possible reason, is because the script that you've trusted in to make you safe and happy is failing you. It might be the best thing that ever happens to you. We all write our own scripts. We do it when we're very young. Brueggemann says that advertising and television play a huge role in shaping the scripts that we write for our lives. When you think about it, the average Christian in America goes to church 1.6 times a month and reads the Bible once a week or less. 
And yet we watch thousands of hours of television that teaches us or misteaches us about the meaning of living a good life. 90% of things on TV project a world in which God has nothing to do with. These advertisements teach us that beauty is really about toothpaste. The secret to enduring relationships is good beer. And we hear this all of our life. Brueggemann calls this a liturgy. He he says that there's a secular liturgy that we are indoctrinated in from the moment that we're born that competes with the church's liturgy. I also think that our wounds influence the scripts we write for our lives. We are fallen people. We don't naturally turn to God. So we write our own scripts that we think will protect us from ever being hurt again. Uh, A mother abandoned you through an early death. So you write a script in which codependency guarantees that you will never be alone again. Your father loses everything in an embarrassing bankruptcy. So you write a script in which financial success will protect you from financial shame. Your father is an alcoholic, spins your family out of control. So you write a script in which you as the main character will make certain that you're never out of control again. But these scripts always fail us. They're conceived in fear and in sin, and they never make us safe and happy. Ever. The real problem with them is we're the author. We are the author of what we think will make us safe and happy. We were never meant to be the author of our own stories. The Bible reveals a different and a better story about how God thinks we should be safe and happy. And the creed outlines this great story for us. We're going to look at it in the weeks ahead. The author of this story is the one God, the Father Almighty. And He creates heaven and earth, and He creates people to steward this earth. But these people rebel, so God sends His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, down from heaven for our salvation. Jesus, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, is born of a virgin. And that means that in addition to being of one substance with the Father, He's also fully human, so that He can provide a substitute for our sins. He's crucified for us as an atonement for our sins. His death releases a healing power that will one day transform all of heaven and earth. He's murdered not in some fairy tale land, but on a real cross, outside a real city, at the command of a real politician named Pontius Pilate. He suffers, he's buried, he rises again on the third day in keeping with the inspired scriptures in which all find fulfillment in him. Then this one Lord Jesus Christ ascends into heaven. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, guiding his church through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the giver and Lord of all of life. He's the gift of the Father and the Son to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. He too is to be worshipped and glorified as the third partner in the divine dance of the Trinity. A dance He summons us to join. We join the dance through baptism and even though we know we'll die, we're confident the dance will never ever end. That's the script that saves us. That's the better story. Do you know what script you're living by? 
have you thrown out that failed script that you conceived out of your own brokenness and sin to make you and the people you love safe and happy? Have you gotten to the point yet where you've thrown that out and embraced the much more beautiful drama of redemption that we find in the Bible? The Greek word for belief is pastuo, and it's just like the Hebrew word. It means to trust. It's used in all but two of the 27 New Testament books. Sometimes it's followed by the Greek word hina, which means that. We believe that the gospel story is true. We believe that Jesus really died, really did rise again, literally and historically. Sometimes, however, pastuo is followed with the Greek word ace, which means into. We believe into Jesus. We put our trust in him as a person. We surrender our lives to him. And when we say we believe into Jesus, we are saying more than that we affirm the facts of the gospel, though that's important. We are saying that we are in love with the person of the gospel, that we are in relationship with the person of the gospel, that we trust the person of the gospel with our lives. That we have surrendered our puny, failed, mediocre scripts and accepted a role in the drama of redemption. Have you done that? Do you believe? I don't think it's a point to dwell on, but the scriptures do say it is possible to be deceived about your belief. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, some will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. Matthew 7. James says, even the demons believe and they shudder. There's a sense in which all the demons believe the Nicene Creed. They know it's true. But they're not believers. So you can't separate this mental assent from personal surrender. It all goes together in belief. And here is my fear after 27 years of ministering in the Bible Belt. My fear is that many Southern Christians have believed with their heads, but not with their hearts. They are still writing their own stories.